So if you've got, got a Bible, we're going to be in Deuteronomy 5. The, the moment is finally here. We've been talking about the Ten Commandments, how we've started this series called the Ten Commandments. For a couple of weeks now, we've introduced the Ten Commandments, and we're finally taking on commandment number one this morning. So we're going to spend this morning's sermon on commandment number one. And, and so before we get into the commandment, here's the first thing you understand. You've got to understand the context Uh, particularly the background, what's going on in the culture when Moses brings the Ten Commandments. This is the ancient Near East. And here's what you got to understand about the ancient Near East is that your life revolved around worship. So if you were a normal, everyday citizen, on a regular, consistent basis, you would attend the sanctuary, or you would visit a temple, or you go, you, you, you travel down to the stadium, and you would spend time devoted each and every week to worship. No, it might be a king, it might be a pharaoh, it might be a god or a goddess. It could be a variety of various deities. And very often you'll come across these names, especially in the Old Testament, of these gods. And I'm saying lowercase g gods. But these are gods who have names that are hard to pronounce. So you might have come across a god named Baal or Chemosh or Molech. And we even have gods today who have names who are hard to pronounce. So if you go to different parts of the world, you might hear people talk about Allah or Brahma. Or if you go to parts of India or Africa, they'll talk about these various tribal deities. And for the most part, we're Westerners, right? We're Americans. And so when we hear these names of gods that are hard to pronounce, we think to ourselves how outdated, how antiquated, because we're educated, we're scientific, We're well-reasoned. We have college degrees, and we think about the past. We think about the old days. We think about the Bible times. We think to ourselves, how primitive. And we, myself, I would never, ever bow down to a statue, right? And I would never drive to Atlanta and visit a temple that worships a false god. And I would never participate in any sort of animal sacrifice. Well, the point I want to make this morning is that maybe these people— Ancient pagans are far less primitive than we think. Maybe these people are far less primitive than we think. Here's what I mean. In Egypt, in ancient Egypt, they actually worshipped a god named Monthu. I think we've got a picture of Monthu. Monthu was the god of war. He was the god of battle. He was bloodthirsty. He was violent. He was vengeful. Well, aren't we today? Don't we worship gods? Don't we enjoy violent sports activities like the UFC and cage fighting and the NFL? And my parents, you college students, you know about this trend that is sweeping the nation. It's a game called Fortnite. Who's heard of Fortnite? Okay, did you know that on average there are 125 million people playing this video game each and every day? All right, that is identical to the population of Mexico. And it's a video game where you fight, you compete, you kill your enemy. Most average Fortnite players play between 6 to 10 hours a week. And there's even a website that tracks, it's almost like a badge of honor, there's this competition, who can play the most Fortnite? And the leader right now, you can check it, has devoted 130 days of their life to playing this video game. If that ain't worship, I don't know what is. But if you were to go to Greece, you'd learn about the god called, named Olympia. Olympia was the god of competition, he was the god of sports. And so what would happen is ancient Greeks, they would actually dress up like animals and birds and creatures, and they would fill these stadiums and coliseums, and they would cheer and they would scream, and they would motivate their favorite athlete or competitor to victory. 
Let's look at the God. Here's, here's our God, Olympia. Is this happening today in our age, in the southeast? Well, yes, it's happening each and every Saturday, right? <laughs> it's happening in Athens, in Baton Rouge, in Tuscaloosa, in Knoxville. And we say each and every week that Sunday is a day of worship, but let's be real, in the fall, hundreds of thousands of worshipers descend on these stadiums to worship. If you were to go to Athens, you would meet the god, a god named Aphrodite. You ever heard of Aphrodite? This is the god of love, of romance, of lust. We know that we live in a culture that is saturated, that idolizes Romance and lust, we see strip clubs, prostitution pervades our cities. More often than not, if you worship the God of Aphrodite, you don't actually go to a temple, you just go to your smartphone, you go to your computer. Did you know that the, 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 the most visited pornography website is called Pornhub, and they actually publish their findings each and every year. They summarize what the last year looked like, and they re- revealed that in 2017, 91 billion videos were viewed on their website alone. That's 12.5 videos for every person on earth. And if you were to combine just the content that was created in the year 2017 and you watched every video back to back to back to back just consecutively, it would take you 68 years just to watch new pornographic videos created this year. We worship the God of Aphrodite today. Many individuals in the ancient Near East, they would actually have rooms and parts of their homes that were devoted to worship. So maybe in the corner of their home, in their bedroom, they would have a small shrine, a statue, a statue like this. They'd actually bow down and worship. They would meditate. They would focus their minds and hearts on worshiping this false God. Well, today, we have rooms that are devoted to worship, we call them man caves and she sheds and home entertainment systems. But we know today that the average American devotes five hours a day to screen time. But we don't call it worship. What do we call it? We call it binge watching. We call it college game day and we enter into these meditative trances. We're fixated, our hearts, our minds on worship. See, the point I'm making, brothers and sisters, is that ancient paganism is far less primitive than we think. And when we think about our own lives, our own culture, our own nation, we have the same problem, it just looks different today. So this morning, as we read commandment number one, we're gonna focus on this idea, this concept of worship. That's what point number one is. The first commandment is really all about worship. So read with me, I'm gonna read Deuteronomy 5, verses one through seven. It says this, And Moses summoned all of Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with your fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, while I stood between the Lord and you at the time to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up into the mountain. And he said, here's our first commandment, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and you shall have no other gods before me. A couple things I want you to pay attention to. First, do you notice how God introduces himself? 
He calls himself who? The Lord. This is God's royal name. This means that God is revealing himself to the people of Israel as a king. And these Israelites would have immediately understood what God is trying to do. What God is trying to communicate to these people is that he is entering into a treaty or a covenant with the people of Israel. And here's what you got to understand is that there were two types of covenants in the ancient Near East. There was one that was made between two equals. It was just a truce. It was a peace treaty. And they would say, let's agree to get along. But this is something altogether different because there was another type of treaty or covenant and it was between a superior and a lesser. A a conquering king and, and, and the new nation that he was ruling. And that's what we get right here. This is a covenant that the conquering king, God, the royal king, the superior king, the ultimate authority is making with the lesser, the nation of Israel. And so in one sense, this is a contract. This is a treaty. Therefore, the Ten Commandments is like the fine print. Okay, it's that contract that you never read, that you immediately throw away. But these are the requirements or the regulations to enter into a relationship with God. And you see, the first commandment is simply God's chief desire. It's his first stipulation. It's his first demand. What God is saying, this is what I want most. This is my priority. This is my chief desire. And God says this to the nation of Israel. He says, I want your exclusive loyalty. I want your exclusive loyalty. In other words, God is saying to the nation of Israel, you can't make any other treaties with any other king. You can't be in a relationship with any other gods. And what we're talking about right here is worship. Now, normally when we think about worship, we think about the narrow definition of worship. We think about what we're doing right now, something you do on a Sunday, something you got to throw on a button down for, when you raise your hands, when you pray, when you sing, you do it in a sanctuary, you do it in a church. But there's also a broader definition of worship, and that's the type of worship we're talking about this morning. One author defines worship this way. He says, worship is the continuous outpouring of all that I am and all that I do, and all that I can be in light of a chosen God. I'll read that one more time. Worship is the continuous outpouring of all that I am, all that I do, and all that I can ever become in light of a chosen God. So in this sense, worship is not simply music. It's not a genre. It's our essence. And we can't stop worshiping. And there's a reason for that. It's because God created us to worship. Do you guys get this? We're all worshipers here. Even atheists, even agnostics are worshipers. And so the question is not if I worship. The question is, what do I worship? And so the Ten Commandments reveals that worship is simply the proper response. It's the proper duty that we we owe or are obligated to give our God and our King. And I think you guys know this, but the Ten Commandments, when God gives them to Moses, he gives them on what? Two stone tablets. Okay, two of them. And the first tablet is devoted to how we're we're supposed to approach God in worship. These are commandments one, two, three, and four. They're all concerned. They're all focused on worship. So commandment number one is about who we worship. And who does God want us to worship? Y'all help me out. 
God, Him. So the object of our worship should be God. Commandment number two tells us how to worship. It's describing the manner of our worship, and that's what we'll talk about next week. Commandment number three, don't take the Lord's name in vain, is the language of our worship. What words, how should we communicate this worship to God? And commandment number four answers the question of when do we worship? Well, we set aside a day for worship. This is the time of our worship. So don't you see, commandments number one through four, the first tablet is all devoted to worship. And God says this in commandment number one, you should have no other gods before me. And here's what God isn't doing. He's not affirming the existence of other legitimate gods. No, God is talking about lowercase g gods. But what he is doing is acknowledging that there is an allure. There is a design, there is an enticing desire that idols have in our world. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning, idolatry. And we we know what an idol is, and an, an idol is generally something that is good. There are countless things that we can idolize in our culture, and most of them are really good. I made a little list. Idols can include money, parties, relationships, family, ministry, Reputation, appearance, career, success, politics, and power. But this changes the way we view and approach sin, right? Because oftentimes when I interact with people, I ask them a question. What do you think sin is? Or how would you define sin? And most of the people that I interact with say something along these lines. They say sin is just doing something bad. It's breaking a rule. It's disobedience. But commandment number one shifts our approach to sin. It tells us this, is sin is idolatry. It's when we take something good and we make it ultimate. And remember how God describes sin. He's saying sin is disloyalty. It's rebellion. It's insurrection against the rightful king and God. And so sin is political disloyalty to God. But it's more than that. Because notice what else God says in in commandment number one. He says, you should have no other gods, what? Before me. And what the phrase before me, just those two words, what they mean, it means in my face. It means face to face. So idolatry is not just political, it's also personal. It's relational. And actually what God is describing right here when he says face to face, he's talking about bold, brazen adultery. In fact, John Calvin, when he's describing commandment number one, he's saying face to face means a shameless man inviting his partner to a family dinner. A shameless man inviting his partner to a family dinner. My family, my wife and I, we have the privilege of being a part of this little dinner group. It's called the Supper Club. And basically what we do is we get together and we cook a really nice meal and we try as best as we can not to talk about the weather, not to talk about SEC football, but to have conversations about depth and substance. And the only people who get to invite it are not our kids, not our cousins, but just the husband and the wife. Can, can you imagine... Just for a moment, if somebody was hosting the supper club, and I said to the host, don't just give me a plus one. I'm not just bringing my wife. I'm bringing my side piece. Don't just give me a plus one. Give me a plus two. That, That secret partner is coming with me. That's what it means 
right? To idolize something other than God. It's brazen, it's bold, it's adultery. Not in the margins of life. It's not just secret rendezvous. It's I'm flaunting this woman. I'm flaunting this mistress. I'm doing it out in the open in the presence of my wife, in the presence of my community. This is what idolatry is. So the first commandment is really about worship. Let's move on to point number two. Because if you're like me, all right, sometimes we tend to overcomplicate things. But do you see how this simplifies Christianity? Point number two is that Christianity, when you get down to the basics, is really pretty simple. It's pretty simple. And here's the decision you got to make. If we're all worshipers, if worship is the essence of who we are, really you got two choices. You can either worship the creator or creation. Do you get that? You can worship the maker or something he's made. And it's an either or issue. It's not both and. You can't have them both. And Pastor Andrew mentioned this last week, but there are 613 laws in the Old Testament. Now, if you're anything like me, you got a bad memory. And so when you hear 613 laws, I think to myself, there is not a chance I can remember all those, right? Sometimes, I, can, I mean, I've got a bad habit. I lose my keys on a regular basis. I can't even remember my wife's cell phone number. I don't stand a chance of remembering 613 laws. But I tell you what, I can remember one law. And guess what? This first commandment actually summarizes all 613 laws found in the Old Testament. And this same law is repeated in the Old Testament, and it's actually repeated by Jesus himself in the New Testament. Let me give you a couple examples. If you flip over one chapter to Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, you'll find a passage called the Shema. And in ancient Israel, the Shema was a prayer that was repeated every morning and every evening. And guess what it says in verse 4? It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you shall be on your heart. Does that sound familiar? It sounds a lot like commandment number one. Do you know there's a point in Jesus' ministry where he's actually approached by a lawyer? Now, now, when Jesus is approached by a lawyer, this isn't a legal expert. This isn't a courtroom lawyer. This is somebody who's an expert in the law, meaning he's memorized, he's studied, he's meditated on, on all 613 laws. And he approaches Jesus and he says this in Matthew 22. He says, teacher, which is the greatest command in the law? And this is how Jesus responds. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with your mind. This is the greatest and the first commandment. Does that sound familiar? Does that ring a bell? It's simply a restatement of the first command. And what all these passages are saying is that God is after the same thing. God has one chief desire, and it's this. He demands exclusive love, exclusive affection. This is why he says, I want your whole heart. I want all your soul. I want all your might, and I want all your mind. He's saying, look, I don't want a portion I don't even want a majority. I don't even want 99%. I've got to have it all. Now, here's the thing. I work on a college campus, and so I'm constantly getting in conversations about dating and relationships. And so very often, I'll make an observation that maybe a guy who comes to my Bible study or is in one of my small groups, he starts showing up to church or to one of our campus outreach meetings, 
with, 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 a, with a cute young lady. And so I'm naturally pretty curious. I'm inquisitive. So I always want to know, hey, are you guys dating? And it used to be pretty simple, right? You guys who are part of previous generations, did, did anybody ever say I used to go steady with my girl? Anybody? Raise your hand if you did, because that'll date you, right? Who went steady? That, that's impressive. I like that, okay? You guys went steady at some point. It was even simple for me. I didn't get a cell phone until I was in college. Okay, so if you wanted to go out with a girl, you guys remember this, you had to use what? Okay, you had to talk to them in person, or you had to use the home phone. Y'all remember those days? All right, calling the girls home, the dad picks up, the mom picks up, the annoying little brother picks up, and you got asked to talk to her, and you actually had to ask her out on a date. And eventually technology improved, so we got, we got instant messenger, do you remember that? The dial-up modem. Okay, you had to get on the family computer, listen to that also awful sound, and then you had to ask him out, okay? But there was something about that. You know, you were actually dating. There, there, there was a status. Some of us maybe went through courtship, but today it is so complicated, and it's so confusing. So often I say, look, are you guys dating? And then the guy's like, no, not really. We're not dating. We're just talking. I'm like, talking? I'm like, I talk to a lot of people. Like, I I talked to the girl at the drive-thru. We're not dating. What do you mean you're talking? And the guy's like, well, yeah, you know, we're, like talk- we're not just talking, we're texting. I'm like, texting? There's a lot of people I text I have no- absolutely no romantic feelings for. What do you mean you're texting? But do you see what I'm trying to push at? And it feels like a relational interrogation. But here's the bottom line. Here's what I want to know. Are you exclusive, Right? Are you dating? Have you said yes to her and no to every other girl on campus? And on the college campus, we call that the DTR. You got to define the relationship. You got to step up and you got to ask the girl out. And do you see what God is saying? He's saying, I'm not content just to text, to talk. The only type of relationship that I'm interested in is exclusive. It's got to be just me. So you can think about it this way. Ladies... What if your boyfriend approached you and said this, we need to talk, okay? That, that just makes me sweat whenever my wife says that. I get a little nervous. I start confessing things because I know I'm in the wrong. But your boyfriend approaches you and he says, look, we need to talk. Let's meet at our favorite restaurant or let's go to our favorite coffee shop. And so you approach, you come to the restaurant, you see him at the table, and it's not just him. There's actually another lady there. And he sits both of you down and he says this. He says, I have feelings for both of you. And I want to date both of you. And you might be thinking to yourself that my love for you has diminished or decreased because I'm trying to date not just one girlfriend, but I'm trying to have two girlfriends. Well, guess what? You're wrong. I have equal love for both of you. And I've already written down in my calendar when your birthday is and when our anniversary is. And I figured it out how we can do holidays with both of you. You know, we're, we're going to do Valentine. I'm going to do Valentine's brunch with you and Valentine's dinner with you. I'll get you both Christmas gifts. I mean, I want to be in a relationship with both of you. I have passion, desire, and equal love. Can we make this work? Now, ladies, this is silly, but what are you going to do at that moment? You're going to what? You're going to walk out. There you go, Jackie. You're walking out. I mean, at the very least... What you understand is you can't have a both and the dating relationship. At the very least, you would say, look, I'm not comfortable with this. I can't do this. 
And look, let me ask you this. Will we ever accuse one of these women who walked out on this boyfriend as being cruel and intolerant and selfish and jealous? Would you ever say that about that girl? Absolutely not. You would say you have every right to be jealous. Because here's what we know deep down is that love by nature is what? It's exclusive. Love by nature is exclusive. It's no different with God. See, this passage actually exposes one of the misconceptions that we have about the Old Testament. This is what I hear oftentimes. I hear people say this, is that the New Testament focuses on the heart. And the Old Testament just focuses on actions. You ever heard that before? You ever thought that maybe? So we say the New Testament is all about the affection and the heart and your internal desire. And the Old Testament, it's all about external obedience. But don't you see? From the very beginning, God desires an exclusive relationship. In fact, we said right here, the Shema, this is a prayer that you repeat every morning and every evening. God is calling his people, the first thing they do before, when they wake up, the last thing they do before they go to bed, is to set their minds, set their hearts on their relationship with God. Think about the Ten Commandments. The first commandment is focused on what? The heart. Well, what about the last commandment? What about the 10th commandment? Anybody know what that is? You shall not what? You shall not covet. Well, what is covetousness? What does it mean to covet? Coveting simply is this, desiring something more than God. In fact, if you read Colossians 3, 5, Paul says this, covetousness is idolatry. So do you see this? The beginning and end of the 10 commandments are simply a call to worship God alone. God is saying in the beginning, in the end, nothing is more important than me. This is how scripture starts and finishes. This is how our days should begin and end, and this is how the 10 commandments start and finish. A reminder that God desires exclusive worship. But very often we don't give him this exclusive worship, do we? We see this in our world, we see this in our church, and we see this in our hearts. And so we're going to talk very briefly about some of the idols that we observe in our nation. Now here's the thing, it would be very easy just to point to the idols out there, wouldn't it? Because they're brazen, they're bold, they're in your face, they're out in the open. And so I definitely want to point out some idols out there, but I also want to ask, just, ask us just for a moment to consider the idols in here and the idols in here. Because very often we have refined, subtle, and respectable idols. And they may not be like the world, but they're every bit as sinful as what the world does. So we'll think about three categories very quickly. Think about the idols of our culture, the idols of our nation. The first one that jumps out to me is riches. It's money. It's security. We even have a phrase for this. We call it retail therapy. We live in a very materialistic society Because buying new stuff, it's intoxicating, isn't it? Did you know that that in our nation alone, over $30 billion is spent on drunk online shopping? And look, it's easy to point out there and say, look, I'm not materialistic. I bought a used car, right? And I don't want to be a billionaire, but most of us really want to retire early. And you might not want a mansion, 
But maybe you idolize a ranch home with four bedrooms and three bathrooms on a nice piece of farmland in Rootville. And you might not idolize a Bentley or a Maserati, but deep down you have this over-desire for a new minivan or Suburban. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we don't make an idol in this church of over-the-top, ostentatious wealth, but we definitely have a desire for security and savings with our wealth. And Jesus clears it up. He says, look, you can't serve God in money. Paul says this, the love of money, not money, the love of money is the root of all evil. So we make an idol out of riches, but in our church, security. Second, sex and relationships. We see this all through our culture. We live in a hookup culture. We've talked about pornography. We know about one night stands and physical lust. That might not be our church. That might be your life. Maybe you don't lust over physical intimacy. Maybe you lust over emotional intimacy. Having the perfect partner, the perfect spiritual husband, the beautiful wife. Maybe you have an over-desire for obedient, well-behaved children. Maybe you make an idol out of grandchildren. Maybe you just want the perfect Instagram family that will get like after like after like after like. We can make an idol out of relationships, even good relationships. The third category would be, the, be this, success. Success. No doubt we live in this capitalistic society where we're all about unchecked ambition. Getting the corner office, making partner, getting the promotion, moving up at all costs. You might not have that type of ambition, but I guarantee that all of us struggle with the approval of others. It might be your peers, it might be your coworkers, it might be your friends. Galatians 1.10 puts it this way, if I'm trying to please man, I can't. I can't be a servant of Christ Jesus. And look, the reality is the list could go on and on and on and on, am I right? There's all kinds of idols in our nation, in our church, but also in our hearts. And there's a reason for that. Do you know that one pastor actually said this? Our heart is like a perpetual factory of idols. It's pretty interesting. Our hearts are like a perpetual factory of idols. Here's what this pastor is saying. Your heart is just pumping out idols. I mean, think of the most efficient, well-run, organized. Henry Ford himself could could not come up with a more efficient assembly line than your heart. And your heart ain't pumping out Model T cars. It's pumping out idols over and over and over again. We constantly produce idolatry. So we said this early. The question is not, do I worship, but what do I worship? So the question is not, do I have an idol, but what is my idol? What do I worship other than God? And that's actually what we're going to devote our community group to this week. We're going to give you time to meditate, to think, to process. What are these things in creation? What are the things that God has made that I have elevated, that I worship more than God? Let's move on to point number three. So we just said this, the first commandment is really about worship. It makes Christianity really simple. You either worship God or something else. But here's the reality, it makes the Christian life really hard. You with me? The Christian life, it might be really simple, but it ain't easy. It's really hard. Have you ever considered this, that every time you sin, 
It's actually your second sin because what rule have you broken first? The what? The first command. Think about the rest of the Ten Commandments. Commandment number two, three, four, five, and so on. Every time you steal, you lie, you take the Lord's name in vain, what commandment have you broken first? Commandment number one. Before you, every time you sin, the first commandment that you break first and foremost is commandment number one. So if you think about it conversely or vice versa, if you are able to perfectly accomplish, perfect, perfectly fulfill commandment number one, you would never what? You'd never sin. You ever thought about that? So what does that tell you? What is commandment number one really all about? What is God asking us to do? What is God asking us to be in commandment number one? He's simply saying, be what? Be perfect. How's that sound? Commandment number one is a command to be sinless, to be perfect. And here's the kicker. Jesus demands the same loyalty. This isn't just for God the Father. This is also for Jesus Christ. He demands the same exclusive worship. Jesus tells us in the Gospels, you got to love me more than money. Jesus tells some disciples, you got to worship me more than your parents. Jesus calls the entire church to love him more than our own lives. And here's the thing. We would never dream of bowing down to a statue, would we? We would never dream of kneeling before an idol. We would never consider driving to Atlanta to attend or participate in a pagan temple worship service. It would never cross our mind to be a part of a bloody sacrifice. And yet, when we examine how we spend our resources daily, consistently, we fall into idolatry. And think about how you spend your resources. Think about your schedule and how you spend your time. Think about your bank account and how you spend your money. Think about your text messages and your conversations and your phone calls and how you spend your words. The reality is this, is that we are constantly slipping into patterns of idolatry. And what did we say idolatry was? It's, it was rebellion. It was rejecting a rightful king. In other words, it was treason. And can you guess what the penalty for treason was in the Old Testament? It was what? It was death. Because these people were committing covenant disloyalty. And they were rejecting their good king. Well, brothers and sisters, the penalty is no different today. Because every time we sin, every time we idolize someone or something, we're committing spiritual treason. And Romans 6.23 tells us this, that the wages or the penalty for our idolatry is death. So therefore, the Christian life is really hard. Because we're called to be perfect and we know that we can't be perfect. So what's the solution? Final point right here, the solution. The solution is really different. It's really different. Commandment number one radically transforms our approach to sin and how we change. You can think about it like weeding. Any, any kids in the audience, do your parents make you weed the flower beds? Kids, anybody got a weed? Oh, yeah. No? None of you? Some of you? Okay, kids, you know there's an easy way to weed and there's a right way to weed. Am I right? Kids, you ever weeded the gardens? When mom and dad, they're getting mean and tough, and they say, go weed the, the flower bed. 
Okay, there's two ways you can do it. You can do it the quick and easy way where you just rip off the tops of the weeds or if you want to do it the right way, you get that screwdriver, you get that rake, you get your fingers and you dig in deep, right? You want to get to the roots and you want to pluck it. Well, it's the same thing with sin because every time we sin, every time we break a command, there's always a sin beneath the sin. And see, very often people approach me on campus and they say, Ben, i got to stop this certain sin. So usually it's football coaches and saying, Ben, I cuss too much. I I keep saying GD or the F-bomb, and I'm trying to shuck it down a little bit. So can you hold me accountable? Help me get a swear jar. Help me minimize my cussing so I only say these certain words. Or I get the student who just says, Ben, I drink too much. I'm drinking a case of Natty Light, and I want to get it down to a six-pack. Can you help me here? And here's what I try to help them understand. Look, the reason why you cuss is not that you just like, like the sound of this four-letter word. The reason why you drink is not because you appreciate the complex flavor of natural light. <laughs> There's a reason why we lie. There's a reason why we steal. There's a reason why we covet, why we drink, why we cuss. It's not because we're weak. It's not because we're sinful. Every one of our failures is a result of idolatry. It's because we're worshiping something other than God. There is a sin beneath the sin. And the rest of Scripture affirms this. Scripture says that we were born into idolatry. Romans 3.10 says this. It says that, that, um, golly, my mind just went blank. Um, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands or seeks for God. Romans 3.10 is suggesting that we naturally don't seek God, we seek idolatry. In Psalm 51, David describes that he was brought forth in sin. David was conceived in idolatry. In other words, we're just like Israel. Israel was enslaved to Pharaoh. They were controlled by a king. We are slaves to sin. So here's the point. Our solution can't be we just try hard. We just muscle it. We just grit our teeth and somehow, some way, we can push through and defeat sin and defeat idolatry. Now, Romans 12, 2 gives us the solution. It says this, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed. Don't be conformed, but be transformed. We should not be conformed to the world because our world worships something other than God. But the solution is to be transformed. Now let's do a little grammar analysis real quick. Let's focus on those two words, be transformed. Did you pick up on the verb tense? What is the verb tense? What's well, past, but it's also passive. You guys remember English 101? You remember those grammar lessons? There's a big difference between passive verbs and active verbs. Let me demonstrate. There's a big difference between me saying, you, saying to you, I want you to hit somebody versus I want you to be hit. You understand the difference? And when Paul talks about transformation, he says you can't transform yourself. You can't bring about this radical change through your might and your strength. You have to be transformed. It's passive. You have to receive this transformation. So brothers and sisters, listen to me. You can't change your heart. You can't force, manipulate your heart to worship God. You can't break away from this idolatry 
out of your own strength. You have to be transformed. The first step is this, is to say, God, I can't transform myself. I can't change myself. Will you do it for me? And 2 Corinthians 5, 17 tells us this, if we are in Christ, we're a new creation. And the old has passed away. That's the old heart, and the new has come. So this also reveals one other misconception that we tend to have about the Old Testament. We tend to say this, the Old Testament is all about law, and the New Testament is all about grace. But what do we see right here in the Ten Commandments? We see that grace precedes law. Can I get you to say that with me? Grace precedes law. Remember this, is that every time we sin, we are forgetting what God has done for us. And so in order to overcome sin, what do we have to do? We have to remember what God has done for us. Specifically, we have to remember that Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection means he is better than what any idol can offer. Let's go back to commandment number one just for a moment as we wrap up this sermon. God says this to his people. He says, I'm the Lord her God, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And then God gives a command. Do you see that grace precedes law? God is using the past tense. He says, I've already brought you out of slavery. In other words, God is speaking to a liberated people. This is a nation that has already been saved. They've been redeemed and they've been freed. So the question is this, how were these people freed? How were they liberated from their slavery? Do you remember this story? Do you remember Moses? Well, this is why the Israelites celebrate Passover. And they would rejoice and they would worship. Because what they would celebrate is the sacrifice of the blood of a perfect lamb. Do you remember this story? Israel was trapped in slavery. And God commanded them to take and sacrifice a lamb, a pure, unblemished lamb, to take the blood of the lamb and to paint it on their doorposts. And because of the blood of the lamb, they were freed from punishment. And they escaped from slavery. And they left Egypt and they wander in the deserts. And remember that God gives them his presence. He dwells with them in the tabernacle. And slowly but surely, God is forming them and molding the nation of Israel so they could be an example to the nations. The point I'm trying to make is this, is that Israel's story is what? It's our story. It's identical. Israel's story is our story because haven't we been freed from sin? Well, how were we freed from sin? Through the blood of a perfect lamb. Do you remember when Jesus comes on the scene in his ministry and his cousin sees him and he points at him and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, Jesus is the ultimate Lamb of God because he spilt his blood, because he sacrificed his life. We can be freed from slavery. Not the slavery of Pharaoh, but the slavery of sin. And so God has freed us. And now we're on a journey, aren't we? And some days the Christian life feels like we're wandering through a desert. It's hard. It's tough. It's difficult. But slowly but surely, we are making our way to the promised land. And while we're on this journey, what is God doing? He's molding us. He's forming us. 
He's making us more like him. And as we go, we take the gospel to the nations. And God dwelt with the Israelites in a tabernacle, in a tent. And God dwells with us today. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 says this. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God dwells within you? So brothers and sisters, one day God will take us to the promised land. But keep in mind, God has already rescued this people. And then he gives them what? He gives them the commands. Grace precedes law. In other words, keeping the Ten Commandments doesn't save us. Because God had already saved these people. So we're not saved by the law. We are saved for the law. I'll say it again. We're not saved by the law. We're saved for the law. And Andrew last week mentioned 15 different ways the law is a benefit and a positive aspect of our life, we see in this commandment number one that the law, commandment number one, enables us to maintain an exclusive, loving relationship with our God. So I'll say it again. Grace precedes obedience. And when we obey, worship is the first command. It is the first response to the redemption that was accomplished by Jesus Christ. So keep in mind, brothers and sisters, we are just like Israel. And if you're in Christ Jesus, God has redeemed you. He has freed you. He has rescued you. He has broken the bondage of slavery. And so what does he desire from you? Exclusive worship. So will you worship him today with your heart, with your mind, with your soul, and your strength? Would you give your life to Christ in daily worship? Let me pray for us. Dear Lord, we thank you for the Ten Commandments. Sometimes we get a little nervous about laws and rules. But Lord, this is a command you give us because you've already freed us in Christ Jesus. You've already liberated us from sin. And God, if we follow this command, we can maintain a loving, close, intimate relationship with you. Lord, I thank you that I was an idolater. I bowed down, I knelt before false gods, and yet you freed me through your son. And not only have you freed me from the bondage of slavery, you've given us all new hearts. These new hearts worship you and love you. So God, I pray each and every day that you would help us worship you more. I pray this week you would give us insight into the idols that distract us from worshiping you. Lord, I pray that this church will be known as a body that worships you. God, we'll 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 be known as men and women who love you, exalt you, worship you above all else. We pray this in your name, amen.